two things. One, that bumper video reminds me of Tron, which Woo! is a good thing, right? And I told the nine o'clock crowd, I think what we're gonna do after the fast is we're gonna have a Tron party at my house. Like all 2,500 of us will just come over, you know, uh, and um, we'll just watch Tron on my, my 48-inch television. So, uh, <laughs> the other thing is, I thought about just not coming up here and letting Kyle preach today. So, yeah, he was... <laughs> I was sitting over there and I was like, man, he's doing a fine job. I'll just hang out back over here. So, uh, no, he was killing it today. Man, worship has been so good this weekend, man. It's so good. We're so blessed. Uh, Yeah, so good. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. If you've never been to the church before, uh, what we do here is we go through whole books of the Bible. We happen to be in the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in chapter 10 today, right? We're going to go through all of chapter 10. If you haven't been with us, it's not a big deal. You're not going to like jump in, in the middle of a movie and not know what's going on. It's not, it's not like that. Um, every chapter has its own lesson within itself. And if you want to catch up, you can go back. You can read the first nine chapters of John in probably 15, 20 minutes, and you can catch right up to speed. Not a big deal, okay? Last week, we talked about this. We were in chapter 9 of John. Chapter 9 of John is very famous. There's a story about a blind man. He'd been blind from birth. Jesus sees him with his disciples. He spits on the ground, makes mud, smears it on his eyes, tells him to wash it off. And then the guy can see, right? And what we understand or what we learn from chapter 9 is that Jesus would sometimes do physical miracles in order to teach a spiritual principle. And the spiritual principle is this, is that we're blind spiritually until we have an encounter with Christ and then we can see. So we talked about this question, right? Or I guess this, this statement that the only pathway to seeing to being enlightened, if you will, to knowing the truth, is to acknowledge that we're blind, that we need help. We need his help, right? This week, we're going to talk about this. We're in chapter 10. We're going to do the whole chapter, so we've got a little bit of ground to cover. We're going to ask ourselves this question, actually two questions. One, are we sheep? I know that's a derogatory term in our day and age. To say that we're sheep means we're kind of like mindless followers, right? I don't mean it like that. Are we sheep in the fact that we are following Jesus Christ, the good shepherd? We'll get into that. Then the second question we're going to ask is, if we're sheep, are we working to look more and more like the shepherd, the one that's leading us? Two very simple questions, a very simple chapter. It's a parable, which means it was told on a very elementary level uh, uh, kind of way of telling a story and teaching a point. Jesus was very good about bringing it down to where we can understand it. So this isn't a complicated chapter, but there are some very, very monumental and important themes and principles that come up in this chapter, okay? So I'm going to do my best to explain this, and um, we'll get into this, and, and we'll see what happens, okay? All right? So let me pray. We'll dive into this. We'll get through chapter 10, and, and uh, you guys can go and enjoy your day, all right? Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I thank you, and I praise you, God. Thank you so much, God, that uh, we have a full house today, and, and that just a great time of worship and being with each other. Lord, thank you for that. God, I pray, Lord, that you bless us, Lord. Um, Keep your hand on us. Open up our eyes and our ears so we can absorb what you have to say and and just teach us something new today, God. Father, we don't just pray for our church, though. We pray for every single church in our county and in our city. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray for every nonprofit in our county and in our city, Lord, that's working to advance your gospel and, and, and your kingdom, Lord. Pray that you keep your hand on those organizations and those churches, God, and that your name is made famous, not pastors or leaders or or organizations, God, but you. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Jesus. Speak to us today and help us to understand, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, you should have a notes handout in front of you. It doesn't have everything I'm going to say, but most of it. Uh, if you have a smartphone, the YouVersion app is really helpful, the Bible app. It's got all the notes and stuff on it. And if you have a Bible, fourth book of the New Testament, 10th chapter of, of John. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit, and I'll do my best to break it down. Here we go. I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all of his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from them because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So in chapter 9, we talked about sight and blindness. In chapter 10, we're going to talk about sheep, the security, the protection, and the possible stealing of sheep. So whenever Jesus teaches a parable, not all the time, but most of the time, he'll set it up with a very important phrase. He'll say, I assure you, or I tell you the truth. And whenever the Bible says, I assure you, or I tell you the truth, we should probably perk up at that, right? That means this is something we should probably pay attention to. Now, this parable, this story in chapter 10, let me give you some of the symbolism here. The sheep pen, or the confinement, if you will, what holds the sheep, is more than likely Judaism or religion, okay? The doorkeeper, the doorkeeper is probably John the Baptist, or it could possibly be the Holy Spirit, basically the one that opens the door for the shepherd, and the shepherd is, of course, Jesus Christ. Now, the thieves and the robbers are obviously the bad guys, right? And the bad guys in the gospel are most of the Pharisees, that is, the religious leaders at Jesus' time. And it's important to know the culture, I don't know about you guys, I haven't spent a whole lot of time around sheeps and sheep pen unless it's like a petting zoo, you know, or something like that. I'm from St. Louis, so we didn't have a lot of like sheep pens around there. And so this analogy is, it, it takes me some understanding and I have to know some context of kind of what Jesus is talking about. But people in Jesus's day, this would have been extremely vivid, right? It would have been vivid because they saw pastures and shepherds and sheep. And what they would have most likely seen is these sheep pens would have been a huge circular enclosure, maybe about the size of this room, a very big enclosure, and it would be surrounded by a huge stone wall. Now, this enclosure would go around. There'd be one way in, one way out, a doorway, and the, the doorkeeper or the shepherd would lay across the threshold of this doorway, so the only way to get to the sheep is to engage the doorkeeper. Look at that analogy. The only way to get to the sheep is to go through either the shepherd or the one protecting the door, okay? So what these first six verses are about is they are about security. When the sheep personally identify themselves with the shepherd, it not, not only makes them feel safe, they are safe. They hear his voice, they stay close to them, he knows them, he knows how many, he knows their names, he knows what they look like, so he, he watches over them. And when they're in close proximity to the shepherd, he has a weapon, his staff, he's looking around that there's no wolves coming at them, he protects them. So the doorkeeper opens the door for the shepherd. And look at the verbs that are used. Okay, again, you have to think of this, this analogy, this metaphor. Look at the verbs. The relationship between the shepherd and the sheep is the shepherd opens the door, he calls for them, he hears their cries, and he leads them where they need to go. 
This is what Jesus does for us. Opens the door, he hears us, he calls to us, and we follow him. He leads us to where we need to be. Now, it says that the sheep not only hear him, but they recognize him. They recognize his voice. The shepherd doesn't drive the sheep. This is very important. Dictators drive people. That's who drives people and uses force to get people to do what they want them to do. That's not the way Jesus works. He doesn't drive or force himself. He leads in such a way that when we recognize who he is, we know that he's protecting and providing for us, so we want to go that direction. But in order to do this, to follow him, we must position ourselves to hear him. Listen, we live in a very spiritual culture. I'm not saying it's always the Holy Spirit. But we live in a very spiritual culture. People are very spiritual people. And we need to have the gift of discernment, which means the ability to recognize what is God's voice and what is not God's voice, right? And we need the wisdom to choose the right path. So we need to pray for that. We need to be able to distinguish that this is, in fact, God speaking to me. And after we recognize that, we then follow that, right? We follow the path that Jesus sets out for us. And if we're following the shepherd, there's no way we can follow strangers. Now, what are strangers? What's that referring to here? This is easy. A stranger is anything that deters us from following the shepherd. Anything that takes our focus off of our protector, our provider, our savior is a stranger. That could be false religions. That could be false teachers and doctrines. That could be ungodly cultural trends. That could be our own selfishness and entitlement and lust and desires, our, our you know, workaholic attitudes or whatever the case may be. Whatever deters us from following the shepherd that's a stranger. And so true sheep not only know and trust and follow the shepherd, but if we're following the shepherd, it's impossible to go a different direction simultaneously. Physics tells us that, right? And so Jesus says this, remember, we can't have two masters and we've all been guilty of it. We thought we can kind of follow Jesus and kind of follow our own desires at the same time. And Jesus makes it clear, it's impossible. One cannot go two directions simultaneously. So we must choose which path we're gonna go down, okay? Next part. So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he's not a shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when a wolf is coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them, and this happens because he's a hired man and doesn't care about his sheep. Um, when I was a kid, we moved from St. Louis to uh, Dallas, and I remember I was in a, I, I can't remember what the school was or whatever, but I remember they would open up with Psalm 23 at this public school, right? Unheard of now. And so I remember even being a kid knowing Psalm 23 pretty well. I got to be a teenager. Coolio wrote that song about Psalm 23, got re-embedded in my head. Um, <laughs> all of you in like your mid-30s are like, yeah. Lo, I walk through the valley of the shadow. Never mind. Anyway, the image of the parable would have been familiar. 
It's the last time I'll ever do that. You never have to worry about me rapping ever again. So the imagery of the parable would have been extremely familiar to the people hearing this, right? The thieves and robbers, like I said earlier, represent the Pharisees. And much like today, what the religious leaders were doing in Jesus's time, much like today, is they were making themselves the door or the pathway to God. Religious leaders were saying, if you wanna to get to God, you have to go through me. And Jesus set the record straight and he said, no, 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 the only pathway to the Father is me. I'm the door, I'm the door. And so he makes it clear, he is the pathway. Now, this doesn't mean that all religious leaders are bad. I would make a very compelling argument from the Bible that religious leaders are good and that that is God's intention for us to have religious leaders. We need people to help us go through the Bible. We need people to hold us accountable. We need instruction. And Jesus wasn't criticizing Moses or Daniel or Solomon or David or Isaiah or any of those people of the Old Testament. He was criticizing corrupt leaders and false teachers in his time and in ours. What he was saying is this, Selfish and false teachers are looking for what's best for them. And because they're only looking out for their best interests, they steal, they kill, they destroy exactly like the devil does. So he says, stay away from those thieves and robbers, those who try to go through a different way or say that they're the pathway to God. And here's the thing, like the people of the earth that try to take things from us or they're in it for selfish gain, Jesus didn't come to take anything. We have nothing to offer him. It's bad theology to think that we have something to offer God. Whenever you hear people say, well, God created us because he was lonely, not true. God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has perfect community without us. He doesn't need us. And so he didn't come to take from us. He came to give to us, unlike the selfish leaders. Jesus gives us pasture. He gives us life in abundance. Look at the symbolism. So again, if you're thinking of this sheep pen, if he's the door and he's the shepherd, he says he's both, right? He leads us out of this constraint and this, this, this uh, kind of confinement into open pasture, into freedom, so we can be nourished, so we can be healthy, so we can have life in abundance. And the good shepherd doesn't just lie across the threshold of the pen to protect us from, from predators and from people who hurt, would hurt us. He is also willing to lay down his life Unlike these hired guns of the world that split whenever time gets tough, the good shepherd is willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. He's willing to go to whatever lengths he has to go to to protect us. And this isn't like a Romeo and Juliet sacrifice, right? This isn't like this futile, I love you, psh, dead, right? It wasn't that. This, his death was not a futile act. It wasn't just a grotesque display of love for humanity. It had a purpose. And the purpose of his death and resurrection was the atonement or the purchasing, the buying back, the reconciling of man's sin. The assumption of this story is this. The sheep, which is us, right, are in mortal danger, and in our defense, the shepherd lays down his life, and in turn, our life is spared. We are saved. That is the assumption of this story. And this is an opportunity. This is a provision, this is a pathway that only Jesus can provide. World and secular leaders, false teachers, and even a lot of Christian leaders are seeking out personal gain. Listen, even the best people you've ever met, the greatest humans you can ever think of, still have insufficiencies and still have a certain degree of self-preservation because we're broken. We're human. We're imperfect. 
And that is not so with Jesus. Jesus came not to be served, he tells his disciples, but to serve. So the contentment, the peace, the fulfillment that we want, that we seek, can only come by a selfless Savior. It can only come by someone who has nothing to gain from what he gives into this, right? Next part. You wouldn't believe how hard it is to find cool pictures of pastures and sheep online, but I successfully did it this week, so I'm proud of myself. (laughs) I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. But I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I am laying down my life so I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay lay it down on my own, and I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Again, a division took place among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and he's crazy. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these aren't the words of someone who's demon-possessed. Can a demon-possessed man or a demon open the eyes of the blind? Okay. So the shepherd relates to his sheep, right? He knows them. He intimately knows them. And so... What we see is the way that Jesus relates to us is through trust and through a deep, intimate relationship. How can we trust Jesus? We can trust him because he was willing to lay down his life for us. And if he's willing to lay down his life for us, that creates that trust. And once we have that trust, we are to know Jesus like Jesus knows the Father, right? Just like a father and son have an intimate relationship, we are called to have that kind of relationship with Jesus. Now, relationships, good relationships, do not happen by accident. They must happen on purpose. So if we're going to have a deep relationship with God, that's not going to happen by accident. We have to intentionally read the Word of God. Right now, a lot of us are fasting. We intentionally fast. We intentionally pray. We intentionally serve. We intentionally build relationships with other people. And if we do this on purpose, our relationship with God gets better. Just like a good marriage, right? You don't talk to someone who's been married for 50 years and are like, well, I don't know what the heck happened the last 50 years. Here we are. You know, that's not the way it works. You have to work at it and be intentional about it. And when you do, you can have healthy relationships. So Jesus is talking about this sheepfold, right? This, this one group. He said there's also a lot of other sheep in other pens, and they're not in our fold yet. What he's referring to is this. He's referring to all the people who has not heard the gospel yet, have not heard about Jesus. I don't know if you guys know this or not. Jesus only ministered to the Jews while he was on earth. So a little small sliver of land, and he raised up 12 disciples. Of course, we know one didn't make it through the process, Judas. But the other 11 went out, and they went to the entire world and spread the gospel. And so these other sheep all over the world are to be brought into one fold, which is Christianity, our faith, with one leader, which is Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. We get so hung up on our differences, right? We get so hung up on you do communion this way, or we do worship this way, or we dress this way, or whatever the small differences are, that we forget to realize that we're all sheep, 
that we're all following the same shepherd. So we need to learn to minor on the minors, let those things go, and major on the big things. In 2016, I was so fortunate, I got to become good friends with an Anglican priest and a Catholic priest and a Lutheran priest, and I got to be good friends with Baptists and Methodists and Pentecostals and all kinds of different people. And we have a lot of minors that we disagree on, but we all come together and say, these are the majors, right? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We can let the minors go. Let's talk about what we have in common, not about the petty things that we have different, right? So Jesus willingly laid down his life. Jesus makes it clear no one could take his life from him. Jesus was bigger than the Roman Empire. He was bigger than the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's been bigger than everything. He's the creator of everything, right? So no one can take his life for him. He willingly laid it down for us. Now the fancy title for this is substitutionary atonement. Now that sounds extra fancy and it's very, very simple. What it means is this. Humanity, you and I, right? Humanity is the one that committed the offense. We were the ones who were rebellious. We were the ones who were lustful. We were the ones who were murderous and covetous and all the evil things that you can think of. That was us. But in God's wisdom and in his love, he sent his only son to be the substitute recipient for our punishment. That is substitutionary atonement. Someone had to pay the price for evil and it should have been us but God came down and his son paid the price. He's the one that took the punishment. And so what we're to do is the father modeled sacrificial love to the son, right? The son modeled sacrificial love to humanity. And now we are called to model sacrificial love to those that do not know Jesus Christ. People say all the time, I would die for Jesus. I would lay down my life for Jesus. That's fantastic. You also have to want to lay down your life for other people. Jesus said that I died, or Paul said it, but that Jesus Christ died while we were still sinners. So a lot of us have this mentality, yeah, I'll love other Christians, I'll love other people like us, and that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said, pray for those that persecute you, love those that hate you. If someone strikes your cheek, off from the other cheek. If someone steals your shirt, off from your shoes. This is what Jesus came to bring, that we love regardless if people love us back. We lay our life down regardless if people care or not. And the point of Jesus's ministry is that by the cross, the way we think and act can be forever changed. Here's the thing, guys. Naturally, none of us wanna lay down our lives for other people. When I became a Christian, I, before I was a Christian, I did not like people. And about six months after I became a Christian, I still didn't like people very much. And God really, really convicted me in 2003. God convicted me and he said that you are to love others like I love people. And I was strongly convicted by that. And the reason why my heart changed and my mind changed and I genuinely really love people now, but the only reason is not because I'm good, it's because the one that modeled perfect sacrificial love now lives inside of me. And if we have the Holy Spirit in us, the Bible says, how can we love a God that we can't see when we can't love the people that we can see? So whenever we say, man, I love God, can't stand church or people, then you don't love God. <laughs> if we say that we love God and can't stand people, I don't want to be around people, I hate people. That is not the heart of the Father. That is not the heart of the Father. So the more truth that came out, <laughs> the more angry people got. It says a division took place. I'm sorry I didn't put a quotation mark at the front of that. A division took place, 
And people either cursed Jesus and said, he's crazy and he's possessed, or people started gravitating towards him because they heard his words, they saw his actions. So here's the thing, the mission and the identity of Jesus Christ will always be the most divisive topic you can ever talk about. The most divisive topic in human history has always been what is the identity of Jesus. And as more truth about Jesus and what he says is exposed to humanity, the more clear, the more divided we will become. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but there will be the unrighteous and the righteous. There will be the good and the evil. There will be for him or they will be against him. The more truth that is exposed, the more hard-lined things will become. All right? Next part. Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple complex in Solomon's colonnade. Then the Jews surrounded him and asked him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And the Father and I are one. Now, this small passage here is about identity. I find this part of chapter 10 ironic. Uh, the festival of dedication is our modern day Hanukkah, right? So Hanukkah that happens in December, that's what this was. Now, the celebration of Hanukkah, even today, and the festival of dedication then, it's a celebration of the coming Messiah that's going to come liberate the Jews. Now, what's ironic is they're having this huge festival, right? Everyone's walking around eating kosher corn dogs and talking about how the Messiah is going to come. And in the middle of this, <laughs> in the middle of this, the Messiah is walking around. He's walking around and the Pharisees walk up and go, tell us plainly, who are you? And he's like, I'm the one you're throwing this big party for, right? I'm the Messiah. At this festival, they ask him, who are you? What's your identity? And he says, I've already told you, but you're not listening. I am the Messiah. So here's the thing about Jesus's identity. Jesus tells the non-believing Jews that they cannot see the validity in his works because they choose not to believe. And since they choose not to believe, they're not in his, they're not in his fold. They're not his sheep. Here's the thing about identity. Let me get off on a soapbox for a second. If we listen to and follow the shepherd, we will begin not only to understand who God is, we will start to understand who we are. Here's where Christianity has dropped the ball in the last couple of decades. We think the problem in our culture and our society is abortion or transgenderism or politics or economics or media. We think it's all these other things. And those are symptoms of a much greater problem. Our problem is we have no idea who we are in Jesus. Our problem is we have an identity crisis right now. Our problem is we don't know who we are, so we try to find it in all of these titles and all of these things, and we're creating new pronouns for ourselves and all these things, trying to find our identity in a movement or an activism or a political party or whatever the case may be. And the problem is, is we don't know who Christ is, and so therefore we don't know who we are. That's our problem. 
So if we would get back to the source of our identity, we will then start to figure out who the heck we are. And we will have a new renewed sense of confidence and joy and love and patience and all the things that come with identifying ourselves with Christ. And identifying ourselves with Christ gives us the ultimate prize, eternal life. If we listen to and follow, we will have security. How do you know that? Because Jesus says, no one will be able to snatch you out of my hand, right? No one will be able to take you out of our pen. But what that means is this, if we're going to find security, if we're going to find salvation, if we're going to find contentment in all the things that come with being a a Christian or a shepherd, or or, I'm sorry, a sheep following the shepherd, we must have close proximity to the shepherd. There's a responsibility on our part If we want security, if we want contentment and salvation, these things, we need to make sure that we are close to the shepherd. He can't protect us if we choose to be far away from him. So we have to be close, and there's a responsibility on our part. So what is a sheep, right? We haven't even really defined that yet. What are the distinctives of a sheep? What makes up a sheep? It's simple. As we've seen in this chapter, true followers of Jesus, if you want to know if someone's a Christian, True followers of Jesus believe in the shepherd, right? He's the only one I follow. They listen to his voice, they know him, and they follow his direction. That's it. It's simple. There's a Christian. And when they do that, they receive protection and they receive eternal life, right? These are the distinctives of what a sheep is. Now, at the end of this little portion that I read, Jesus like really throws it out there, right? He really throws gasoline on the fire, if you will. Several times in the Gospels, Jesus says what's called an I am statement. The reason why the I am statements are so offensive is Jesus was claiming to be God. When they asked him who he was, he said, I am, which is echoing what God said to Moses in Exodus that I am, right? He was claiming to be God. That made them so mad they wanted to kill him, right? Time goes on, a little bit of time goes on. They have another conversation. They say, who are you? And he simply says, the Father and I are are one. You cannot be more blatant. You cannot be more clear about the identity of Jesus Christ, that he is God, than this very simple statement, the Father and I are one. And when he says this simple statement, it makes them so angry that they want to kill him again. All right, let's get into the last part. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. This is very important. Listen, Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from my father, For which one of these are you stoning me for? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your scripture, I said you are gods? If if he called those whom the word of God came to gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say you're blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I'm the Son of God? If I am not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I'm doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Then they were trying again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. So he departed across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed him there in that area. 
So again, the Jews pick up rocks and they want to kill Jesus. Why do they want to kill Jesus? They say, it's not because of the good things you've done. It's not even because of your popularity. Jesus, they tried to kill Jesus here and they eventually killed Jesus because of his words. So what were Jesus's words? What was so big about them? Well, his words said a couple of very profound things. His words say that he is God. His words say that forgiveness of sin only comes through him. His words say that contentment and hope only come through him and it's regardless of your circumstances. And his words also said that eternal life is found only in him. This would have been extremely offensive to them. Now this is offensive because it's not the good works of God that offend society. It's not even the popularity of Jesus that offends society. It's the same today. Listen, few people criticize the works of Christianity. How are you gonna criticize orphanages, right? How are you gonna criticize hospitals? How are you gonna criticize, I don't know if you guys know this, the university was birthed out of the Christian movement about 600 years ago. How are you going to criticize good things like that? How are you gonna criticize the works of Mother Teresa or all the different things that the church has done in the United States and all over the globe? You can't criticize that. So what we do though is we don't criticize Jesus's works, we criticize Jesus's teachings. And if we stand firm on our faith, we must know that Jesus's teachings will not always be popular. And here's the reason why. Jesus pulled out a couple of scriptures from Exodus and Psalms where he said, I said that you are gods. What he's referring to is this, in our culture and in that culture there and almost every culture that's ever existed, humanity thinks that we are the authors of our own destiny that we are completely in control. And so what we've done is we've essentially made ourselves our own gods. So whenever someone brings a teaching to us that says you're not in control, we instantly meet that with scorn and hatred. Do you know the devil's design was not for you to worship Satan? Do you know that's not what Satanism does? I don't know if you know that or not. When Satan showed up as a serpent, right, in chapter three, that's my serpent. When he showed up in chapter three of Genesis, he didn't look at Eve and say, hey, God's not around, worship me. He didn't say that. Do you know what he said? He said, if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God. If you do what you wanna do, you will be like God. The problem isn't worshiping Satan or you know, worshiping Krishna or Allah or anything. The problem is we worship us. We worship us. It's about what we want to do. And so whenever any teaching comes at us and says that we need to change to the conformity of Jesus Christ, we are offended by that because we've made ourselves our own idols. We've made ourselves our own end all be all to everything. So what this did is it, it did, it threw gasoline on the fire, right? Listen, the more truth that Jesus exposed about God and the more truth he exposed about the darkness of humanity's hearts, the more hatred grew, the more they got riled up and they hated him. Now listen, this is one of the most important slides today. In the presence of hubris, arrogance, in the presence of hubris, truth is met with blind hatred because it exposes the things in us that need to change. When we are arrogant, when we've got it all figured out, when we are the author of our own destinies, whenever truth is brought to us that exposes the insufficiencies and the insecurities in us, it is met with hatred because we are arrogant. That's why we must approach Jesus Christ not only with reverence, you're the boss, right? Not only with reverence, but with humility. 
God cannot work with someone that is prideful and full of hubris and arrogance. Why do you say that, Corey? Because he says he resists the proud. Can I, whatever, we'll go there. Can I tell you why Christianity in the United States is dropping down at record numbers and why Christianity in Russia, China, and Africa are growing at like exponential rates? Can I tell you why that's happening? Because we're the most arrogant nation on planet earth. Listen, I'm not, listen, hold on. I'm not anti-American. I'm, I'm not anti, I put a post this last week on Facebook whenever I write anything political, blah. Anyways, I said that we need to respect our president, that we need to pray for, I, I believe in those things. And I love our country. We live in a great country. But the reason why Christianity is not working, it's not keeping, it's not getting traction. In fact, it's losing it at astronomical rates. It's because we are an arrogant people. We're Americans. We've got it figured out. We're the best, right? God bless only us. And there's a problem with that. And Christianity is shrinking. And in Africa, though, you know in Korea, there's a church of 100,000 people? That's the size of our city. And it is growing. And they'll pray for five or six hours a day, the whole church. And it's happening over there, the godless nations that we think are so evil. And Christianity is just exploding, just exploding. And that is because we have not humbled ourselves as a people. We have not humbled ourselves as a people. So they tried to seize him, right? They were going to take him. Look, Jesus wasn't afraid of dying. Some people will read this and say, well, Jesus was afraid of the people and he split. No, Jesus left Jerusalem and he went to what is modern day Jordan because their aggression might possibly stop the work that he had to do. He still had more work to do. He still got about six more months of work that he needs to do before he willingly gives his life. So he left Jerusalem. Listen, listen. He left the Holy Land because they wouldn't receive him and he went to the Middle East where they would receive him. Now look at what is happening here. He left one body of people because they had it all figured out and he went to another body of people who knew they didn't have it all figured out and they were more receptive to him. We need to keep that in mind, guys. So here's the question. I've got two questions, right? Now I'll end. The first question is this, and I'm asking myself. We have to, we have to, we have to assess ourselves and step back and say, am I really following Jesus? Am I a sheep, right? Now, there's a very simple test for this. The first question is this. Do we believe that he's the good shepherd? Not just the historical Jesus, not just the prophet or the good teacher Jesus. Do we believe that Jesus is God? God incarnate, right? Do we believe he's the only payment for our sin? Do we believe in the cross? Do we believe in his words? Do we believe that he is the leader that we need to follow? The other question, if we're sheep, we need to learn to listen. Guys, I'm not trying to be mean. Do you know the only way to listen? Be quiet. We live in a culture where we don't know how to be quiet. We don't want to be quiet because we're afraid of silence, right? If we go out to eat with someone and they go to the bathroom, the first thing we do is we pick out up our phone because God forbid we have a conversation with someone or have to sit quietly for a minute. We're afraid of being by ourselves. That's why the radio is always on. That's why the television's always on. That's why we're always trying to keep ourselves busy, 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 busy. And what we need to do, just like the psalmist David said, he says sometimes we need to be still. And we just need to know that he's God. It's in those times of quietness that we hear him. 
It's in those times of quietness that we learn to recognize the Father's voice. And when we hear the Father's voice, when we start to recognize the Father's voice, we then have an obligation to follow His instructions and to follow His example. Listen, not just through prayer. If you're going to follow the instruction of God, you have to pick up the instruction of God. You have to know what this book says. You need to read this. I know it's daunting. I know it's a big book, but just start in one of the Gospels. All the stuff I've taught today, this is not above anyone's intelligence level. This is very simple stuff, right? The men that Jesus led were not all educated, bright men. We can do this. Pick up the word, listen to him, check what you hear from God by his word. He won't contradict himself. Are we willing to humble ourselves? Listen, guys, I've had to do this. I've had to say I've made myself my own God at times. I've made my own decisions with no consultation from God at all. I have done things on my own. I have been arrogant. I have had a hubris. And I need to ask God to forgive me of that. I think the Christian church needs to do that. I think we as individuals need to do that. We need to come together and say, we, we do not have it all figured out yet. Forgive us, Lord, that we have been so arrogant. Forgive us, Lord, that we have tried to take our destiny out of your hands and put it into ours. Forgive us, God. Where do we find security? If we're true sheep, we find security and protection by the shepherd. Not in eating late at night, not at pornography, not, it, not even in our, our, our family and our friends. We find security, we find ultimate protection in him. And so we have to ask ourselves, if I'm truly a sheep, where do I run when times get tough? Where do I run when the pressure is turned on? What is my strong tower? What am I anchored to? And listen, if we do all these things, not only are we sheep, but the shepherd will lead us into abundant life, both here and for eternity. Listen, we have something here. If we follow Jesus Christ, the whole world is looking for contentment. They say happiness. There's a difference. Happiness is contingent on your circumstances. We have something greater than happiness, which is contentment and joy. And that means our circumstances do not dictate our contentment and fulfillment. We have something greater. So the square footage of my house and the car that I drive and my trophy wife and my straight A kids, and all stuff, those things are all fine and good, but that's not where my contentment comes from. Those things can go away. My contentment, my fulfillment, my hope, my joy, my love, my passion is found in Christ and you cannot take that from me. You cannot take that from me. So that's where it has to be. So listen, okay, here's where we get into the other side of it, right? Okay, one, are we sheep? The second thing is, if we're sheep, we're to start looking more and more like the shepherd. If we're sheep, we're to model what the shepherd does. This means we grow closer to Jesus in how we think, how we act, how we speak, how we treat other people, our temperament, our attitude, our benevolence, all these things need to start modeling him. So I wanna ask you, sheep, if you're a sheep in here, if you claim to be a sheep, if you claim to follow the shepherd, I wanna ask you, how much do we work to provide security, service, and love to others, both inside our community, right? Because we're to take care of each other. It says that in the Bible. We're to bear each other's burdens that no one in our church should be hungry or go without, right? We should even sell our possessions if we have to, to make sure everything within our pen is taken care of. But it says not just in our pen, 
Jesus said there's those outside of our pen that also need to be brought in. I'm not talking about growing the experienced community church. I'm talking about growing the kingdom of God and bringing these people into our fold under one shepherd. So I ask you, how deeply do we sacrifice and lay down our lives for the salvation of others? We were in our small group the other night talking, and, and I have several of my small group members here, and they're all great, and they're all young, and, and we were talking, and I asked them, I said, hey, when's the last time you personally led someone into a deep relationship with Jesus Christ? I'll ask you that now. When's the last time you took one person? And I'm not talking about doing the sinner's prayer thing where you check it off your list and you're done with them. I don't believe in that. That's not discipling. That's not leading people into a relationship with Jesus. When's the last time you dug into someone? Said, hey, give me your phone number. We're going to hold each other accountable. Hey, man, we're going to go out and get, call me at two o'clock. If you're struggling with porn at three o'clock in the morning, you give me a call. I'll answer. We'll go meet at Steak and Shake. We'll get something to you know, drink or eat. We'll talk. We'll pray. We'll wait till the temptation passes. Let's keep each other accountable. Let's read a book of the Bible together. Let's get, let, let's get into the messy part of our lives with each other. When's the last time we did that? I felt so convicted in 2016. I was at this big conference thing for small groups. Never been in a small group, never led a small group. I was in this big conference for small groups. And the pastor of this huge church in Idaho that's all about small groups, right? He wrote the book that we do our small group study for. I'm sitting there eating, eating dinner with him. And he goes, hey, you know, how's your group going? And I'm like, oh, I'm not in a group. Well, you teach one, right? No, I don't. And he goes, well, how in the heck can you go out and tell your church to do what Jesus did when you're not? I started a group, right? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. I was like, well, we will be starting a group soon. And, um, and we did. But here's the thing, guys. You know what? Christians are always talking about how do we grow the church, right? Let's put a guy in a bunny suit at Easter and have him jump out of a helicopter throwing $100 bills and we'll get some TV personality to speak and that'll grow the church. You know what that grows? That grows goats. You know what goats do? All they do is consume. We're, we're recording this one too, right? <laughs> we don't want to grow sheep, or we, want, we don't want to grow goats. We want to grow sheep. And if we want to grow sheep, and if we want to grow the kingdom of God, you want to know how to really grow the church? If all of us went out and discipled one person this year in our church, we'd go from 2,500 to 5,000 in a year. And that's not so we can brag about us. Do you know why we go out and reach out to our neighbor? Listen, do you know why you get a cup of coffee? Do you know why you be quiet and listen to people's problems? Do you know why we go out of our way to be uncomfortable and talk about the deep things? Do you know why we get our hands messy with our community? Do you know why? Because do you know what's in the balance? Everything. Everything. Economics aren't in the balance. Politics aren't in the balance. I don't care about those things. We're talking about eternity here. In 2016, we were so worried about our candidate getting elected that we didn't talk about the kingdom. We're so busy looking for a Saul that we forget that we're following Jesus. Man, I know that offends you guys. I know it does. And I'm so past it though. I have nothing against political figures, but we're so busy waiting for someone else to fix the world. When Jesus said, you're the salt, you're the light. Jesus said, you are a light that is supposed to be put on a hill so the entire room can be lit up, so the community can change. That's us, not a politician, not a corporation. You and me. And do you know how we do that? 
Not by trying to start huge things that minister to 12, 15, 20,000 people at a time. Nothing wrong with that. But what we do is we engage that one person. And we get deep into their lives. And we love them. And we're willing to lay our lives down for them. And we're willing to reach out to them and to help them. Regardless if their belief system is different than us. The only way they're going to see the love of the Father is through me. It's through you. That's what the Bible says. It says, by their good works, they will give honor to God in heaven. That means we have to go out and do good things. We're not saved by our good things, but guys, it should be a natural byproduct of our salvation. If God has touched our lives, we should be going out because we understand how good the security and the warmth and the protection of the sheepfold is. We know how good the shepherd is, and we should want to bring other people into that environment, into that atmosphere. Because souls are on the line. Marriages are on the line. I didn't talk about this at the other services, and I'll make it brief. Two weeks ago, I always, I read the news pretty avidly every day. I just kind of wake up and I, I read, you know, the news. And there was a story, and it didn't make big news about a 12-year-old girl who got on Facebook Live, right? This 12-year-old girl gets on Facebook Live, and I watched it. And she throws a noose over a tree, and she puts it on her neck, and this 12-year-old girl, 12 years old, guys, she gets up on a stand, puts the noose around her neck, and she starts apologizing to the world around her about how much she's failed. And then she hangs herself live on Facebook. And for 20 minutes, her body dangles. So people say, Corey, why are you pushing us so hard to go out and talk to the world? Because if that little girl would have known who she is in Christ, that no matter how much picking on, no matter how much hatred, no matter, no matter what people say about her, when we start to understand that we're sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Why should we go out and spread the gospel? Because everything is at stake. Everything. It could be my little girl. It could be your little girl. It could be your neighbor. We have work to do, church. We have work to do. We are called to bring some order and some peace and some love into a world that is hateful and chaotic and divided. And we are come, and Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the ones who come in with the light. That's us. Would you bow your heads with me? I don't know why I feel led to say this, but I just want to say it. There's some of you, you have no idea what your next door neighbor is going through. Their marriage may be falling apart. They may be at the end of their rope. They may, they may be struggling. And listen, they may just need you to bake some cookies and bring it over. They just may need you to come over and say, hey, I'm weed, I'm weed eating my lawn today. Can I weed eat yours too? 
They may just need a simple act of kindness. The barista at Starbucks may just need you to ask her how her day is going. Not hit her upside the head with the Bible, not making a fool of yourself or bringing attention to you, but just saying, hey, how you doing? Can I pray for you for something? Well, I'm not a Christian. Well, just humor me then. Tell me something you're struggling with and I'll just pray for it anyways, right? It's about engaging people. Regardless if they're a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist or they're hateful at work or they're difficult to be around with, it's trying to cut through all that and look at them like Jesus looks at them. Every single person we come encounter with Every single person that we meet or shake hands, that is a soul. That is an eternal soul. What's in the balance? Everything. Everything. Why do you think Jesus laid his life down? Everything is in the balance. But Corey, the place is getting full. Okay. Corey, it's uncomfortable. Okay. Corey, it takes work. Okay. Father, break our hearts, God. Break our hearts, Lord, for the same thing that breaks yours, Father. Lord, it says in your Bible, Lord, in your word, that it is your will that none shall perish. Father, if we're going to save people, if we're going to save people from a, a separation from you, Lord, we've got to get out and shine the light. We've got to get out and pour the salt, Lord. We've got to be that vessel. We've got to be that tool. God, this week, this week, put someone in our pathway, Lord. Let us have the wisdom to engage someone in conversation, to just love people, to show them just, just little acts of kindness. Lord, let us keep our attitudes good, Lord. Let, us, let our words be sweet. Let us have patience and gentleness and self-control. Father, if there's anyone in this room who's been hurt by your church, if there's anyone in this room who struggles with their faith, Lord, I just pray that something today has, has provoked some thought in them or some interest. I pray that they will forgive us, God, if we've hurt them. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Jesus, and we praise you. As your heads are still bowed and your eyes are closed, there's communion all the way around the room. There's people up at the front, my left and right, who will pray with you if you need prayer. Listen, if you take communion today, as that bread touches your tongue and as that juice touches your tongue, just remember that Jesus, the good shepherd, laid his life down for us, and we are now to go lay down our lives for those around us. Be respectful of those that take communion. If you want to pray for someone today, reach over and pray for someone. And if you need prayer, come receive prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God. Bless my brothers and sisters this week, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. I hope you have a great week.